We are in continuing our series on the life of Christ, and we're in our, our second part of this series called The Example. And, you know, one of the things in, in college, as students go away to college, one of the things that is a, um, that happens is many times students will start to drift away from their faith. They move away to a new town. They get away from their church family. They don't get plugged into a good church. And so they start to drift in their faith. And two of the main reasons people lose faith in college is, number two, the, the, the reason is they're challenged about the problem of evil. They get a college professor that says, if God is good, why is there so much pain in the world? And they start to wrestle and they struggle with that. But the number one reason why people depart from their faith in college is a desire for sexual freedom. If what you want to do conflicts with your beliefs, you can either live as a hypocrite or you can change your beliefs. That's the two options you have. Many in our culture have opted for the latter. Furthermore, we have what anyone would have to conclude is a cultural obsession with sex. And I don't mean that people enjoy it, of course, you know, that is something to enjoy, but we are obsessed with it. I heard a person say this past week that a teenage boy today with one Google search will see more flesh than what a teenage boy saw his entire life, a teenage boy that was sent to fight in World War II with one search. That's how crazy obsessed we have come, become with sex. You I mean, you see this when you walk down the aisle of the supermarket. You're getting the checkout, you'll see magazines with headlines like 10 Ways to Drive Your Man Wild. You guys, you laugh because you know you've seen them. They're on the front of all of these magazines. And then there's books like 50 Shades of Grey that have become popular and movies made about them. There is nothing that will destroy your faith and dull your spiritual appetite faster than a captivity to sexual lust. Now let me start off by making it clear that God is the creator of sex. He designed it. He is not surprised that we like it so much. He designed it that way. It is a good gift given to his children for their enjoyment in marriage and for his glory. Let's just get that out of the way. But all of his gifts given to us, all of them can go wrong. And the greater the gift, the more capacity it has for damage if it's used in a way that's not for his glory. So let's look at how Jesus dealt with two people in Scripture for whom sex had gone terribly wrong and done all kinds of damage. Let's look in John chapter 4 this morning, starting in verse 4. And he had... And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, a woman from Samaria came to draw the water. All right, let me give you a little context here in this passage that we just read. The Samaritans were a, a smaller, hated community inside of Israel during this time. The animosity stretched back to a conflict nearly a thousand years before. The, the northern part of Israel, 
you see they had succeeded from the south. There was a northern kingdom after Solomon, and there was a southern kingdom. The northern part of the, uh, the kingdom separated, and they grew unfaithful to God. They had one wicked king after wicked queen after wicked king in the north. So in 722 B.C., God punished them by allowing the Assyrians to come in and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, in those days, when you conquered a people, you did not want them repopulating themselves and in rising up to avenge their parents. So what they did was twofold. They would carry off the majority of the people into exile where they would make them slaves and make them concubines, causing them to lose any distinct cultural identity. And number two, they would send a bunch of their own people into the conquered land to mix in with the remnant there and essentially do the same thing. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel did not resist this integration of the Assyrians at all. They freely embraced the Assyrians, marrying them, integrating their culture into Judaism. And this is how we got the Samaritans, even a different faith. where They were not even practicing Judaism. So the southern kingdom of Israel, which thought of themselves as really the only true blooded Israel's left view the Samaritans as compromisers or kind of half-breeds. There was so much animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans that if you were trying to get from Galilee, the the area where Jesus grew up, you had Samaria and then you had Jerusalem. And it was easiest just to go straight from Galilee through Samaria to Jerusalem But what the Jews in either Jerusalem or Galilee would do is they would cross over the Jordan, go around Samaria to Galilee, and then coming south, they would do the same thing. It would add several days to their journey, but they disliked the Samaritans so much that it was worth it to them. What we see here is Jesus is making a trip, and he doesn't do that. He's actually going through Samaria, and this was a Samaritan woman that he runs into at the well. If you'll notice in the passage, it said she was about the sixth hour going to the well. That's around noon, around 12 o'clock. Have you ever been outside in the Middle East around noon? It's hot. The sun is beating down. And the reason she is there around noon and not the early part of the morning at the well when the other women would show up at the well, is that she's hated by the other women. She's an outcast of outcasts, which is what makes this story so shocking, and especially when we look at Jesus' next statement in this story, verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. She understands the conflict here. She gets the friction that's happening here. For Jews, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The, uh, John gives a little bit of historical background there in his writing. Now, that looks like only a small pause in your Bible between verses 7 and 8, but it was probably like at least a 10-minute of awkward silence because as I explained, the Jews had no, no dealings with the Samaritans. So finally, she says, why are you talking to me? You know, I, you have to think, you know, they probably even spoke different accents. 
you know, being in different parts and not, not communicating with each other. So, you know, I kind of like in my mind as I'm reading scripture, I kind of like to think of this like Samaritan woman, uh, you know, you know, talking back to Jesus in like this New Jersey accent, like, why are you talking to me? You know, that's the kind of the way, you know, I'm thinking through this passage. Of she's kind of got a little bit of this attitude with this Jewish guy, the Samaritan woman. Jesus answers her in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give, have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And you, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from him it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water dwelling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You see, just like this woman came daily to get water, drank it, but then woke up the next morning thirsty again and has to go back continually to get water, she has gone to the well of romance to satisfy her soul time and time again. And it would satisfy her temporarily, but it left her thirsty again. So she got out of one marriage and into another. This time she thought she'd found what she was looking for, and again, it worked, but she woke up the next morning still feeling thirsty. So what did she do? She turned to another and another. And then she gives up, as we find in our passage here, really gives up on the institution of marriage altogether. What she does every day with the water pot for her physical thirst, she is doing with sex for her spiritual thirst. This woman hasn't lived in truth for a long time. For years, she has lived a lie, covering her hurt and her shame with her sexual desire. Like a band-aid, there is a part of her that was dead and had been dead for a long time. And Jesus would heal her by giving her assurance of his love for her. The love of her heavenly father, the love that she had craved all of her life, a love she looked for first from her earthly father and then from a boyfriend, then from marriage, then from an affair. And after it all was all said and done, she still thirst. But Jesus' love would give her two things that she craved a love where she was fully known and completely loved. Jesus would give her that love. He knew everything about her, and he spoke complete acceptance to her. Let's look at another one in Scripture in John chapter 8. Let's see another story similar to this one of Jesus' dealings. Verse 3, 
It says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. The Greek syntax here in the language implies she was caught in the very act of, been in, caught in, which had to be awkward, and why some commentators say this woman brought to Jesus may have even been naked, half-dressed. She's shamed and humili- you know, humiliated. And Scripture doesn't tell us where the guy is. Verse 4, they said to him, the scribes and the Pharisees, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now we don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us what Jesus began to write in the sand. Some say he started to write the sexual sins of the scribes and the Pharisees there in the sand. Scripture then tells us, after he had written in the sand, let him who was without sin cast the first stone. Did anybody cast a stone? Nope. They all walked away. Verse 10 says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. What captivates me about Jesus' response to me is the order in which these events happen. He said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. We would usually in our world, in our religious mindset, reverse that, that sentence. If you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. But that's not how Jesus said it. He was telling her to change, not in order to be accepted, but to change because he had already accepted her. Religion tells you change comes first and acceptance second. But the gospel reverses those. It tells us that change comes from acceptance, not for it. You see, Jesus knew she never had the ability to break free from her idolatry that led her to adultery until she felt embraced of God better than what she had sought in her adultery. So God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin, not the reward for having liberated ourselves. Salvation is a gift given to undeserving people like this woman, which lifts them out of the captivity to their sin. Jesus liberates you from the power of sin, not by holding out a reward in front of you for liberating yourself. Your captivity to sin is too great for you to liberate yourself. Jesus liberates you by becoming sin for you and suffering its consequences in your place. His blood not only releases you from the penalty of sin, it also releases sin's power over you. The gospel is that Jesus would pay the penalty for sexual sin of both of these women. In him, they would be fully known and fully loved. Because he would become their shame. You see, he would be displayed naked upon a cross, exposed. He took their shame so that they could become his righteousness. 
isn't the cross beautiful for us? Man. So from these stories, we really have three revolutionary ideas for those whom sex keeps you from fully following Jesus. The first is that you have to understand that sex is not just a physical thing. In the pagan world, they thought sex was just for the body. Like biology is like eating a meal or taking a nap. But the Bible takes it to a much more higher view. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 8, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual, a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The Bible presents sex as a covenant relationship in which physical oneness is accompanied by oneness in every other area, financial, spiritual, emotional. God designed us as a psychosomatic unity among all of those things, which means body, mind, emotion, soul. They are all interconnected together. Physical oneness was to be matched by oneness in every other area, united as a lifelong covenant in marriage. Having sex out of that full person covenant unity tears apart the integrity of a person. It literally disintegrates you from the inside out. The Bible presents sex as a profound union between a man and a woman. To the young girls here today, C.S. Lewis, the great writer, said that when someone wants to have sex with you outside of marriage, they are saying to you, I want union with your body, but not with you. He said that the guy who wants to have sex with a girl without marrying her is like a person who likes to taste food, but then doesn't want the calories, so they then turn around and regurgitate it. Before I go to my next point, I want you to see that I'm trying to show you that God's rules, they're never just arbitrary. But at the end of the day, we do things because God commanded it, and he knows what is best for our lives. I say this to you as a pastor, having seen this multiple times, there's nothing that will destroy God's work faster in your life than sexual sin. It blinds the eyes, it dulls the heart, and it corrupts your motives. It is destroying. It is against your own body. Paul says, whether it is sexual sin in the mind or you actually carry it out with the act, sins against your own body. Sexual sins destroys your walk with God, tears apart your soul, and your capacity for a healthy, committed relationship. It is wicked and it is awful. It's not just a physical thing. Number two, sex is driven by soul thirst. At the heart of sexual sin is idolatry. Our craving from sex is often driven by the vacuum left from the absence of God in your life. That's what you see in this woman in the well in John chapter 4. The state of our soul is thirsty. We are thirsty. We thirst for love. We want a perfectly accepting, unconditional love. We look for it first in our parents, and then when we don't get it from them, we develop all kinds of dysfunctions. We thirst for purpose, to know that we are important, that we matter to someone else. We thirst for peace of conscience. Everyone struggles with guilt. We look for answers for all of these things in romance and sex. 
but they can't provide it. The only one that can give our thirsty soul perfect love is God himself. The only one who can give us real purpose is God. The only one who can declare us innocent is God. We can do like this woman in John 4 and keep giving ourselves away to more and more people, but that just compounds the problem and multiplies our guilt because there is a deep, innate part of us that knows it's wrong. Whenever someone says to me as a pastor, you know, pastor, I just, I struggle with my past. That past is almost always wrapped in sexual sin. Sex is God, sex God's way is a profound statement of a covenant loyalty in marriage. And sex outside of marriage is often a quest to find something that only God can provide. A quenching of the thirst of your soul. Number three, the gospel alone is what will liberate the sexual captive. Let's read a verse here in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the foundation of living waters, here's the same language that Jesus was using, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What Jeremiah is saying is he's telling them that they have drunk from wells that won't, that can't satisfy. Not everything you drink in life will satisfy you. Imagine dying of thirst and grabbing a cup full of pancake or waffle syrup and starting to chug that. (laughs) Would that satisfy your thirst? No. It would just leave you even more thirsty. They say that when you're dehydrated at sea, you have this crazy desire to just guzzle salt water. It satisfies you for just a moment, but a split second later, what are you? You're even dehydrated and you're more thirsty. This is how bodily pleasures like sex work when they are done outside of the confines that God has established. Things of earth can't fully satisfy you because they are not just made of the earth. You are made of heaven too. And when you pursue earthly pleasures at the expense of heavenly ones, it is like drinking salt water in your life. The more salt water you drink thirsty at sea, the more it will dehydrate you and ultimately kill you. And I love the contrast here between the the cisterns and the spring water that Jeremiah kind of gives here. Cisterns, if it fails to rain, what happens to the cistern? It dries up. Throw mud and dirt in it, and what happens to the cistern? It clogs up. A spring, you can throw all the mud and dirt in it all you want, and it will never clog up. You know, we understand springs here in Florida because we've got them all over the place. I love going up to Ishnatuckney River and going down the river, that spring river on a tube, that, that pure crystal water, clear water. It is so beautiful. And Jesus doesn't just give you new water in a cistern. He puts you up in a spring of living water that is continual. When life and people throw dirt at your joy, it just keeps pushing through. 
because the joy that comes from Christ is like that spring that continually quenches your thirst. The gospel liberates you from the downward cycle of sin. It shows you a love that is better and more sustaining than what you've sought in sex. The love you are seeking does exist, just not in 50 shades of gray or on tender or in porn. It exists in the love of the Father. That is is our living water that quenches our soul. The one that feels like they have no more worth because they have given themselves away to too many people, or maybe because they have been abused or raped, the gospel shows you you are incredibly valuable. So valuable that God sent his son Christ to die for you. That's how valuable you are. You know, I've heard this from girls I've already gone this far. Why not keep going? I've heard, I no longer value my body. Jesus valued your body and soul so much that he died to cleanse it and make it anew. For guys, it is the gospel that gives us the power over our desires. The problem is not that your desire for sex is too strong. It's that your love for Jesus is too weak. And you've abandoned your pursuit of Christ in your pursuit of your sexual desires. Your love for Jesus grows as you see the glory of what he did for you. So look at the crucified Christ. See how great a price he paid to redeem you and and learn to think about it, not in bodily desires, but look at it as what he did for you. One last objection I hear people say is, I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Now, on the face of it, that may sound humble, but it's really disbelief in the gospel. It is saying Jesus did not suffer enough on the cross. I've got to suffer too. Or you may have some standard you feel like you have to reach before you have any worth. When you say, I've got to become this in order to have value, you are saying, I need something besides Jesus and his finished work and God's acceptance to have worth. If that is your attitude, then the truth is your heart is an idolater and you're failing to believe the gospel of grace. In Christ, you have the absolute approval of the only opinion that matters on this earth. If you say, I know that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself, you're saying that your opinion of yourself is weightier than God's, which makes you an idolater. Many of you say, I can't believe because today you are a sexual captive. You're obsessed with it, and you feel like you can't give it up. Others of you are captive to the guilt and to the shame of your past. The gospel liberates you from both. The gospel provides you with the love that satisfies the thirst of your soul and gives you the power over your passions, even for something so strong as sex. It releases you from the shame of past mistakes by washing you clean and making you new. Remember, It was Christ upon a cross 
when he died and took upon our sin and gave us his righteousness, washing away your past. The message this week I want you to remember is come and drink. Come and drink from the living waters. Many of you are thirsty. Come and drink of the gospel that satisfies your soul. Let's pray.